0: This is Robbo, and today in Turbo Talks we're talking to Adam Hansen of Lotto Soudal about the last dance and making gains on and off the bike. Hello, hello! Thanks for tuning in and welcome to a new Turbo Talks podcast. And before we start with this one, just a massive thank you all for the great responses that we got on our previous episode with uh, Ashley Momenpasio of CCC Live. Uh, Amongst other things, she shared how she managed to improve uh, as a rider during lockdown. So interesting one to listen to and uh, give it a listen once you're finishing this episode. Because we're going to talk, probably talk a bit about improvements on this one as well. Because I wouldn't be surprised if today's guest actually found himself a way or two or maybe even three uh, during lockdown. How to get faster on the bike, maybe by uh, fine-tuning his position. Or maybe he just uh, simply printed off a new gadget of his uh, 3D printer. Um, let us say it's time to find out and uh, welcome him to the TurboTalks podcast. It's the man who famously finished 20 Grand Tours in a row, Adam Hansen of Lotto Sudal. Welcome, Adam. How's things?
1: Things are very good at the moment. Thank you.
0: That's good to hear. You are in the Czech
1: Republic, I understand? That's right, Czech Republic. And it's um, it's actually been a, quite a good time during the uh, coronavirus period here. So, So what's that crazy period
0: been for you? Because you were one of the riders who was now maybe like famously uh, stuck in the UAE after the UAE tour uh, and then made it home to Czech, uh, went into another lockdown in Czech, etc. Tell, tell us, what was it like for you?
1: Well, yeah, UAE was pretty crazy. So we had a few positive cases in, in the Peloton and then our hotel was locked down. And it was quite early stage um, when this happened. So we didn't really know, you know what the procedures were and... We weren't told so much information, so um, that, was a, that was a pretty a big eye-opener. And then, um, yeah, we got released, and then I flew to uh, Krakow, which is in Poland, and I just crossed the border of Czech Republic. And that was, you know, in UAE, they only wanted to send us back to our nationality country. And that was a bit of a nightmare for the Australian cyclists because no Australian cyclist lives in Australia at the moment. And if we were sent there, we would have been stuck there. And that would have been bad because we wouldn't have been, um, if the season would have continued, we you know, we wouldn't be able to get out of the country. So I was lucky to get to Czech Republic. And in Czech, we actually had a really good um, lockdown. So we locked down very early. We were allowed to train outside. So we, this is pretty good. Um, and the conditions in Czech were, you know, we had a very low rate compared to the rest of Europe. And yeah, it was um, it was actually a good time. I, I, it's I, I, it's a bit sad to say this, but I really enjoyed um, the, the the lockdown here in Czech Republic.
0: So it sounds like a, like you survived it pretty well during the lockdown. Was there a is there a certain uh, thing that you like a good habit that you developed during lockdown?
1: Well, you know, I always said if I was a superhero and I could have one superpower, it would be to pause time, just to catch up on stuff and. To me, with the lockdown, this is this is how I felt. The whole world stopped, and I could just really, um, just really, yeah, catch up on life a lot. And for me, that you know, as a cyclist, we race so much, and I'm into different things also that I don't have so much time on my hands. And um, I work for a, a company called Limo, where we do a lot of testing, try and improve efficiency um and this was really good for me because i had a had a good period of time where i could sort of not step away from the bike but do more tests on the bike to improve my cycling and this is a bit hard to do during race season and also it's hard to do not in race season because you're not fit enough to do these tests so it gave me a good a good amount of time to refocus on my cycling and try and improve my cycling um And yeah, and try and find different ways, training methods, uh, using different tools to, yeah, just to get ahead.
0: And what, and after all that good stuff, was there also a thing like a bad habit that you managed to drop in that period?
1: Bad habits to manage (laughs) to drop. Um, (laughs) so let's go for the the
0: good and the bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I think, um, I well. I think the world needed a stop just to have a look on life a little and to appreciate the good things and the bad things. And for me it was more, I think, you know, before coronavirus time, the world was just moving too fast and, you know, everything, you know, people wanted bigger things, better things, faster things. <clears throat> and maybe maybe we, we realised that life is a little bit different and there was more important things to life than all these, let's say, superficial things. Um and, yeah, so I guess in a sense, the, 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 in, in a positive way, we realize, well, I think a lot of people realize what's more important. And we sort of, now we neglect the, um, the, the bad points or the bad things that we're doing in life, if, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. And in all that time that, that you had and managed to catch up on stuff, is it also something that you catch, uh, caught up on was it uh, the last dance? Because I think your idol is Michael Jordan, and you must have had some time to watch the documentary.
1: A hundred percent. You know, I love The Last Dance. And I grew up in this period and watching Jordan and that, and the whole debate against, you know, who's better, Michael Jordan, LeBron James. And it's a bit sad to see, like, just just touching on The Last Dance, a lot of the younger generation doesn't know what happened, Uh, didn't know what happened, you know, back in the the 90s. And I, I played... Like I, I represented Cairns, I played at state level in basketball, I loved basketball, I collected um, basketball cards, I brought all my basketball cards out, you know, they were in boxes in the attic, I took them down, I went through them, I have so many Michael Jordan basketball cards, Shaquille O'Neal, <laughs> wow. Penny Hardway, um, and watching the last dance just brought such a big smile on my face, because I knew all those players, because the thing is, when you look back at generations of sports heroes and that, you only remember the best and in the last dance they mentioned so many players and i knew them all and that's that's the period where i really watched basketball so for me watching um the last dance was i loved it it came out in europe it was released three o'clock in the morning and I on the, on the Monday, and I watched it three o'clock in the morning. I was up watching um, both <laughs> oh, really? the episodes. Yeah, I, I loved it. I really, really loved it, and it it just brought back so many memories because I watched all those games live. And like back in those days, it was Saturday morning, ten a.m. 10 o'clock, uh, Channel 10 was the only time we could watch NBA highlights before the internet and everything. And, and that, as a kid, that's what we did. We waited until Saturday morning, 10 a.m. to watch it. And it was, you know, it was just so nice to see it again. Um, I loved it. I really loved it. And it showed, you know, it, it really showed what it takes to be a top athlete to to be the best in the world the sacrifices you have to do, the decisions you have to make. And it's not just about, you know, not just about Michael Jordan. It's about what he did to his teammates to get them at the level where he wanted them to be at to be world champions.
0: And is is that something that you take uh, uh, inspiration from in in terms of maybe as, as a sort of like veteran on the team to help your younger teammates? Maybe not by cursing them out, obviously, but like in terms of like giving them leadership or guiding them, etc.
1: Oh, for sure, um, especially this year. And I think it sort of came from uh, racing last year. I was always the quiet one, um, just do my job, keep my head down, make the team happy. And I went through a phase last year where, <clears throat> as I got older, I stopped. This this sounds this this doesn't sound nice, but I stopped caring what other people thought. And, and it was more like when a guy didn't do his job properly, I'd, I'd point it out in the debriefing. And it would annoy me in a race where you do a race, I would do my maximum, they say they do their maximum, I stop my job, you know, two or three K before the finish, I sit up. And then when I see a teammate pass me hanging on to the back of the bunch, it's more like, well, if you can do that, then you could have worked harder when we needed you. And if you're just trying to get a top 40, a top 30 result, that's not our job. Our job is to win with Caleb. So in the debriefing, I would always point it out. And this year in Turananda and UAE, I was really calling everyone out. If they weren't doing the job properly, I would, yeah, I would call it out. And this is what you need because, you know, it's a team effort. And the team effort is to get Caleb to win if it's a sprint day. And we need, like exactly like the last dance how michael jordan really pulled it like in training he really called everyone out in the training sessions and last dance and he needed everyone to be at his level to to be world champion and and that's that's a bit of the the role i was trying to do also in uae and um uh, tour down under this year is to get everyone on the same page and to get the best out of everyone because if if a rider is working before me to set up a lead out I have to push him as far as possible, I have to yell at him, I have to keep, like when he throws his elbow out and he says it's enough, I just come on a little bit longer. If he can do that extra 50 meters, if it's only 50 meters longer, that gives me an extra 50 meters of free riding and then I can go 50 meters longer. And even if it's 20 meters, all these meters add up and it it makes it much easier for Kellab to you know, sprint to the line because if he dies ten meters from the finish line in a sprint, and we have one other rider that could have done twenty meters extra, just twenty meters, it, it it's a win. It's the difference between winning and coming second or third. So yeah, it, it totally makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So maybe you uh, you had a little bit of inspiration, or or uh, maybe you should get a bit of credit for dethroning Richie port and Nomi Longa as well as your teammate one day.
1: Oh yeah for sure and also like (laughs) when you say um, you know a bit of motivation Uh after watching the last dance I had a bit of a I was like it really made me think like oh did I really give everything for cycling it made me you know rethink my careers like Uh maybe I should have been harder and um, but yeah I definitely got inspiration from it that's for sure.
0: And how uh, have you guys been in uh, in contact with each other, with the team? And is something like that then discussed as well or more mentioned or how does it go?
1: Uh, you mean regarding like, um, well, uh, every Thursday, well, every second Thursday, we have a Zoom call within the team and that's with all the riders um and a few of the staff members uh once we had all the staff members but every thursday 5 p.m we have a zoom uh uh, talk with the team we get updates everyone um shares their uh the situation in their home countries um and if they can train and uh how they're going and how their mental state is i see a lot of riders are struggling a lot mentally with the situation Um, but yeah we try and get the team together talk some things out Um, we get like a a race calendar update and then every other so that that's like every second second thursday and every other thursday we have a like we have a nutrition talk we had an altitude uh talk altitude training talk this week we got time trialing talk um so we do get together and you know we share some information within each other and um yeah we try and um yeah put make everyone feel like they're still part of the team because a lot of the riders we're spread out throughout europe you know i'm in the czech republic we've got guys in girona we've got guys um in calper okay a lot of them in belgium we've got one ride in germany um, monaco so they do feel a little bit isolated and we just try and bring everyone together to make it feel like we're still a team we're still together and you know we're going to move forwards and hopefully get back together very soon to start racing
0: and in, this, in the whole period, you managed to stay healthy and now you're getting sort of like back more into serious training uh, as, as the start of the season comes closer?
1: Yeah, so when, when it first happened, um, I, I knew that it was going to be a long time before we start racing. So I basically had a rest directly. I took uh, three to four weeks off. Um, and then I focused on, I, I, like I kept, like I always stay healthy um uh nutritional wise and and not to gain weight um for sure and i i started to do more testing so i was doing um for me it was I, I have all these theories and things i wanted to test um like i said i worked with Liamo, and i do different tests for um position tests um i have the uh the tux uh, the galaxy rollers And this is, so every morning I would do, and this is not, I don't count this as training. Um, It's more technique training, where I do 30 minutes on the rollers with a a, a machine called Ploxygen, which is like an altitude stimulation. And I'll do that every morning and every afternoon. And the, the, the Galaxy Tux is really good just for technique training. And I see this. So just, just a quick example, like if I do ride on, the, on, on a set of rollers or compared to a smart trainer or I have an indoor bike, there's three different systems there and, and you do pedal very differently on these three different systems. And I, I, I didn't come from a track background, so my previous coach really pushed for me to get a set of rollers. Um, just to get the spinning good, um, to eliminate my dead spot score. So I do some tests on that. And I, and I focus more on testing and position in the first three to four weeks. And then um, what I did after that is I do a lot of long rides, um, because I don't think you should be doing intensity now. Like even now, uh, my first race is, um, it's two months and one week away. So I'm just doing, I'm training not very often, I'm just um, training every second day or every third day. But having said that, last week I did a, or well, 10 days ago I did an Everest. Um, the week before that I did um, something I don't normally do. I rode 270 kilometers in one direction through Czech Republic and I got an r and and B, spent the night there and I rode back the next day. So I'm doing different things like this and just um, seeing how the body cope. So I do a lot of fasted rides, um try and uh, improve my fat metabolism as much as possible so it's more like a testing phase for me and all the things that i wanted to know wanted to test i do it now uh, because i have the time and then um yeah and then I'll, i'll get serious into my training probably in two weeks time where i'll have a more of a different program
0: and it sounds like a like you said um at least it sounds like you also maintain like a good mental health by just setting yourself like those little challenges and enjoying things like just going in one direction, going to stay there for a day or whatever and stuff like that. Um, and I imagine that's also then something that you sort of like share with your teammates and picking up that leadership role and making sure that they don't go over the top in this spirit as well.
1: Oh, exactly. Like when, when lockdown first happened and I, I took the time off, um for me i stress that we should be doing things like this because if you're training if you have a really set program and you're training you know really strict you don't have time to do these tests and we cyclists there's it's not black and white how to train there's no there's no one way how to train and it's all theories um everyone works different um So for me, it was more like when I hear these guys doing, because as soon as Paris Nice was cancelled, a week after, guys were still doing super hard 220k rides with intervals and things like that. It's sort of like, oh, slow down, guys, you know, like you, you cannot maintain this for And back then, I think it was three or four months. Um, so you know take the period off spend some time with your family because also i really believe when you have a rest at the end of the season you should have a real rest because what you want to do is you want to be hungry for cycling you know what i mean you want that the desire to race hard and uh, I, i i see so many riders where they finish the season they continue riding throughout the season not so seriously but then when you do like November training, December training, and you don't do down under, so you do half a January training, you're a little bit tired of cycling before the season even starts. Where if you have a really good rest, do other sports, something like that, you, you have the desire and you starve yourself from cycling. You have a more desire to get back into racing, get back into training and do everything 100%. So... I really believe in this, this type of training from a mental side and also from um, with this coronavirus period. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I was trying to uh, I encourage a lot of riders to have a bit more time off and more focus on their position, um, different training techniques, um, test things, and do things more for fun. So, like, when I did this 270K ride in one direction and back, it was part of Czech Republic I never rode in. I would never go that far and i saw new places it was enjoyable okay i rode it hard i did you know the first uh, four hours fasted so i was training my fat metabolism but i don't have to train hard um, and it was you know part of the country I didn't see i stopped in a, a town that i've never been to never would go to um, so i had new experiences there and it didn't feel like training you know it was, a, it was a super long day and i learned so many things saw new things and i got good training out of it but it wasn't mentally like you know this is my set plan, gotta do this certain wattage um and you're more free
0: and in that time that you you meant you said you did a lot of testing maybe on stuff like bike position did did some what came out of that did you find yourself that you're in a better position on the bike when racing starts again
1: yeah well definitely um you know like when I go back to like um training on the rollers, I think um like, I did a YouTube video on um, the, the Tux Galaxy Rollers, and it, it's a bit of a shame how, like, these smart trainers, they're very good. I, I, I understand racing on Swift is, 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 is wonderful, and it's fun. Um, but when you look at the Galaxy Tux, in comparison, it is such a cheap device. It is, there is no reason why a professional cyclist or a serious cyclist shouldn't have a, a pair, and you cannot get this sensation on a smart trainer and i have you know i have um indoor training bike um but still spending a couple hundred euro or not even on a set of rollers can do so much better for your technique on the bike it can do wonders for your technique on the bike and especially for a lot of cyclists that didn't come from a track background where we don't have the the perfect pedaling technique um, this is a very very small cheap investment and it can really break up your training and and you know like I, I love smart trainers i think they're very good um but it's sometimes it can be hard to train so long during these lockdown periods on a on a smart trainer because the problem with a smart trainer is it makes it's it's too easy to ride if, if, if that makes sense where if you're on a if you're on a set of rollers you have to focus you know <laughs> if you if you deviate a little you will crash on a set yeah, of rollers yeah. and and it's but it's nice it's nice because it feels like you're on the road you know and time goes so fast so quickly on it and this is good because um And I'm a huge believer in training inside. Like I do a lot of sessions inside, even when it's, you know, 30 degrees outside, because there is no training like to train indoor. When you train indoor on rollers or smart train or anything like that, you have no downhills, you have no stop signs, you have no corners, you are pedaling constantly from start to finish. And that's why it's so difficult to train on these things. That's why it's so easy to ride six hours on the road. but so difficult to ride two and a half hours indoor because you're muscles are constantly training you don't have these micro breaks during training sessions so um greg henderson who's um you know he's uh, he's specialized in sports science and he's um you know from a track background he would and and i was the same we would do our really specific training programs indoor even if the weather's perfect outside we would do it indoor just to just to get the maximum out of your training sessions because it's actually um yeah, you cannot cheat inside um, on an indoor trainer. So yeah, definitely um, like uh, w- like I work with uh, a limo and this measures your dead spot score. And your dead spot score is when you have pauses throughout your pedaling stroke. And... Um, it works like on the Giro x-axis and it sees how much your foot, how stable it is throughout your pedal stroke. And if you train outdoor, um, it can be very hard to try and improve this score. And when you're training indoor on a smart trainer, it gets a little better. But when you train on a set of rollers, it's like on your track bike riding on a track. And it, you can really improve your efficiency on the bike with the set of rollers um yeah so this is one of the i I did many different tests but this is one of the tests. um one of the tests was to also to compare all the different type of trainers also um i wanted to see um but yeah training indoor on a set of rollers this is the fastest way to make you more efficient on the bike um and and for me it's enjoyable i would do sessions like um like i said i'd do like altitude training on the rollers every morning every evening just for 20 minutes or 30 minutes so time goes past really quickly and then i would do my main session on a set of rollers on a sorry on a set of um home trainer in the middle of the day and it and it's all the time adds up and it's it's all different type of training um and it just makes your days go so much easier and faster
0: so that's a lot of gains by, by focusing on technique and position, et cetera. Um, and now I want to move sort of like to a bit of like the, the tech side of things, because I think a lot of the listeners uh, probably already know, maybe have tuned in even to hear from you uh, about all your technical uh, yeah, inventions, maybe the little gadgets. So what did you do during lockdown? Did there, Is there anything in particular that you printed off that 3D printer that's going to change the cycling world?
1: um well i'm working on uh different shoes at the moment so i make my own cycling shoes and uh i sort of i don't want to say invented but i made the shoe i I created my cycling shoes where the where there's no ratchet system on top and the ratchet system is sitting underneath so my ratchet system is a it's a bit of a different system that i made it's 3d printed um it's 2.7 grams um so it's super light and if you compare that to a boa system, they're like 11 grams. And then if you add the, the bolt to attach it to the sole, you know, you're adding, and then with the, 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 um, the screw to attach it also, you're looking at about like 16 to 17 grams. And I try and everything to minimize the weight. So 2.7 grams with the 3D printer is, you know, it's really minimum. Um, and then I have the, the opening on the inside to make it more aerodynamic. And I try and make it minimal as possible and light as possible in every way. And the new system I'm trying to do now is um, I'm making it a, a full seamless shoe. So basically the rear comes off, your foot slides in, the rear goes on, locks in. But you cannot see the seams because it's all nicely, um, how do I say it, sanded all in one piece when it comes together. And the locking mechanism is also 3D printed. Um, and I hope this shoe, so I've, I've made a few prototypes and this shoe should be finished Um, like I should be racing with it um, at Dolphin Air this year. Um, That's my first race on the 15th of August. So that's been 3D printed and all the, um, like to work out the cleat position. So when I do the sole, you have that um, air pocket space in the shoe where the bolts go through the carbon and um, to mount the cleat in. So this is always uh, 3D printed um, to create that air pocket space in my moulds. So I do things like that. I also played around with electronic laces on my shoes um, because it would be a dream for me just to have two little buttons where you know your foot's inside the shoe and I can have all the uh <clears throat> the tightening system all internal so nothing is exposed. And then you just have two buttons underneath the shoe that you put one to tighten, one to loosen. So I've been working on this um and while this is not 3D printed, um, it's a bit of um, electro, automa- uh, electro automation that I also do on the side, but for me to make the molds for the molters inside and for the chipboard what I do is I 3D print the exact same dimensions as this and then um, I put that in the mold so I mold it and then I take those 3D printed pieces parts out like I 3D print the motor and I take that out of the mold and then I put the real one the real motor in there um, in the finished product because if you put yeah epoxy and carbon on top of a mold, or mold of a motor you would never get it out it'll be there <laughs> it'll be there for good um so i do things like this um with it but yeah it's been very busy actually at the same time i was 3d printing um mask because we didn't have enough mask at the start so i was supplying the hospitals with the mask and the ambulance place with 3d printed mask also so i was kind of busy the first few weeks um just running the 3d printer 24 7 with that and then um my next goal um, not many people know this, but I'm actually um, I'm having a new three D printer arrive. I think tomorrow or the next day, which has a bigger um, print bed, and I'm going to make a bicycle.
0: So, how do other riders in the peloton respond to that when they see you uh, working on that, being busy? Are they interested? Are they looking like, oh, what is this guy doing? Or what's the response in general?
1: Um, yeah, I do get a funny response. I get a lot of questions and um, like with my shoes, I've got a few riders that are requesting them. So um, I sent out one pair uh, last Friday to a rider. Um, he should get them, yeah, today or tomorrow. Um, I've got another rider. i got to uh, uh, finish his shoes, which I hope would be two weeks away. Um, so riders are definitely interested. Some riders joke that I'm like ten or fifteen years in front of um, you know <laughs> the standard, um, which is pretty funny. Like even with like the uh, the aerodynamic um, jerseys, um, like I wore a uh, <laughs> I wore an Aero jersey, um, I think it was back in two thousand and seven, where. Um, well, it was a pretty funny story, actually. Uh, I, I, I didn't like these big baggy jerseys. So what I did is I, I just fully copied the design and everything. And I made my own jerseys in the Czech Republic. Super tight, super tight. And I, I remember sitting out in the front of a race and I had Ralph Aldock, He put his hand arm around me and he asked me how I am. And then he was feeling my jersey around my shoulder. And he goes, what is this? I don't know this jersey. And I was, and I was, so I was like, uh, yeah, this is the jersey I made. And, he, and then he was like, and it's got a different logo on it. I said, no, 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 no. It's, it's exactly the same, exactly the same. It's just a different cut, different material. It's like a skin suit. And he was like, looking at it, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah seriously, it it's, it's still had Moa on it, but it wasn't made by Moa. And he was like, "Uh huh." And then, um, and I said, "I've been racing with it for two months already, and no one's noticed." Okay, the riders noticed because they all wanted one. But I was like, you know, with the photos and the media and that, I said, "You cannot tell the difference. It's it's really I've I made it identical." And then, yeah, years late—well, not years later—six um, months later. Um, you know, Rolf um, pushed that Moa to make um, aerodynamic jerseys. And our team was the first to have, you know, team issue aerodynamic jerseys. And then, um, yeah, then I started racing with skin suits, so TT suits. And then that sort of caught on. And then, uh, but riders wanted pockets. So we asked uh, Moa to make um, pockets onto our, onto our TT suits. And then, um, yeah, then that's sort of how the, the whole one-piece tt suit with uh, well they call them sprint suits now um sort of happened so a lot of riders yeah they do um they they have a bit of laugh at me but you know deep down inside that that they want the stuff too and you know everyone wants these um extra gains you can get for free um because you know we all want to be at our best
0: do you reckon is that where the most gain is at the moment is cycling in terms of maybe looking at aerodynamics
1: oh 100 percent. i think um well, I think it's two things. I think it's efficiency how you pedal, um, and yeah, definitely aerodynamics. Aerodynamics is the easiest one because with aerodynamics, like I went to a shorter handlebar in, actually, I can't remember. I think it was like two thousand and nine. I went to uh, thirty-eight centimeter handlebars, and you know, you saw a big shift like three or four years later. Everyone dropping two centimeters in handlebar width um and if you can just get used to that you just save what's doing nothing you don't even have to try you just it takes two rides to get used to it and that's it um and then especially with um because the most you know everyone focuses on frames wheels um different parts on the bike to make it faster internal cables and that but the number one thing to slow you down is your body position and um if you have a good aerodynamic body position you'll save so much more watts with that than with faster wheels or faster frame or internal cable so if you can get that right first then you should work on the other parts yes it's much easier just to change a set of wheels but with sponsors that you're tied to this can be more difficult but body positions number one your skin suit is number two helmet and then it's wheels frame internal cables and this is all free this is free if you can if you can if you can save 10 to 15 watts for for doing nothing then this is a huge difference this is a huge difference then the other thing is you know efficiency on the bike so when when you're more efficient on the bike is how you transfer the the power from you to the bike um this is this is the next thing um at the moment i'm working with a company called liamo and what we do is we work out how efficient you are with dead spot score leg smoothness um body position so this is one thing that does um yeah it makes a big difference so this is one thing i've been working on one thing i've been testing with and something i really believe in so i've been uh working a lot with this and testing and this is something that uh this i would I believe this is something that the peloton will take on in, you know, maybe one year's time. There's teams already being in discussion with us to try and adapt our uh, technology for them to improve their position and time trial position also. So this is the next thing that I think that'll take off.
0: Sounds like all those uh, triathletes and amateur cyclists uh, might be better off uh, maybe working on their body position instead of spending all those countless amounts of dollars on those uh, nice looking carbon frames and wheels, etc.
1: Oh, for sure! You know the position is number one, and uh, I did an Ironman last year, and uh, yeah, for me, I-, I couldn't have the best equipment um, because um, with Campagnolo we don't have a uh, a clincher disc, and there was no way I was going to do an Iron because. I wanted to finish that was my number one thing it wasn't about um, trying to get the best time i just wanted to enjoy it and finish it so i didn't want to use tubular tires for the race um, because i knew this would be a massive problem if I have a flat tire so i just used normal wheels um, nothing special but um, yeah i went for a very good position and and i really took it easy in the race because i was <laughs> i was in um, unknown territory i had no idea what to expect from my body and yeah just with the body position I I felt like I did a really good ride and a good time and um, it's really the number one key Um, and at the moment we're doing a lot of uh, testing in the on the track in the wind tunnel Um, and it's not about you know trying to be more low it's it's more about trying to be more narrower so you know we call it the shoulder tuck position where you're pulling your shoulders in to try and be more narrow and keeping your arms up higher so not to be so low but to be more high and to block that that hole because when your arms are parallel to the ground, you create a hole between the underneath your chin to the where your elbows are and that catches a lot of wind. So what a lot of riders are doing now, we found out in the testing, is when you raise your hands higher, it sort of splits the air to go around you and you don't catch it like a parachute. So the, the body position is definitely the, um, the, yeah, the key factor. That's the first thing you should do. And if you finish that and you get that to its best, okay, then you can spend the money on the wheels, the positions, and things like that.
0: So I think you finished that Ironman with uh, with custom-made bars, obviously <laughs> that you that you made yourself. Um, is there also something that you consider like what would be like the biggest failure in terms of like attempts to to make something that's gonna, that you're gonna benefit from, and then it ended up you made it, and then it ended up being a disaster? Is there something or
1: that I've done?
0: Yeah. Um, is, there, is there something that you printed off and you said, like, this is going to be it? And then it turned out to be, uh, yeah, wouldn't be working as you had it in mind?
1: Oh, I, I fail all the time. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I could say, you know. Yeah, you know, I have all these ideas and like, for example, the, the new shoes that I'm designing at the moment is going to be seamless. So my current shoes at the moment, they open up from the inside and you slide your foot from the inside and then you have the lacing on the inside and the ratchet system underneath. And it works well. It really works well because on the inside, you have less turbulent air coming through, less flow and air through. And on the outside, you have a lot more air going through. So from an aerodynamic position uh, point of view, it's it's I've made it the best way, but I just want to perfect it a bit more and have and have no lacing on the inside and have it all internal but to do this i need to make the front part and the top part one piece and have the the lacing all internal and the only way i can get my foot in is through the rear so i have a two-part shoe where the heel comes off You foot your foot in and you sort of attach the heel to the um to the front part of the shoe. And to work out how to connect these two together in, a, in an aerodynamic position, uh, a style also, was I had like a, like a ratchet system at the back of the shoe and I made this and I printed this, spent a lot of time on this and I attached it and this really did not work. Um, first I tried to make molds from carbon fiber, so I 3D printed the molds and then I um, did it with carbon, did not work. Um, I tried another technique where I had a, um, <laughs> this um, sort of like a, a button pin where you put the heel on and it connects like with these the special um, click on buttons. And it worked so good, I could not get it off. I had to get a flathead screwdriver to disconnect it and um, it, it worked when it was in there, but I thought, okay, I cannot have a pair of shoes where I need a flathead screwdriver to get my feet out. This is, this is not good. So this was way too strong and powerful, um, and I had this different system where I had like uh, cables running throughout the shoe, um, and you had this pulley system at the back on the heel, so when you pulled it up, um, it would tighten all the cables, and it would tighten the rear to the front, um this worked but it was way too complicated like there was all these internal cables and um i just thought this because now i'm selling these shoes to riders this was this is a product that i could use for myself but it wasn't a product that i would want to put on the market it was just too complicated um and if you were to not pull the lever at the same time you move the heel forwards you could pinch a cable and if you pinch a cable um, it wouldn't flow so good, and it just wasn't. Yeah, it was a bit overcomplicated. Uh, it worked well, but I, this is something I didn't want to release to the market. Um, but yeah, I have I have heaps of failures. That's 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 basically how I got where I am. I, I had no real background in uh, working with composites, and I think this was, I think this was one of my winning keys because I think when you get taught something, you get taught from, you get taught in a specific way on what works, and you sort of, I don't want to say you're narrow-minded, but you're sort of limited to what you've been taught, where when you come from a different point of view, where you haven't been trained, you're sort of open to all ideas, and you test all ideas. And a lot of them won't work, but you will test ideas that they will not teach you, if that makes sense. And um, this is how I sort of, it, making my shoes was all trial and error, and I went through a lot of errors. But I actually got to the end with um yeah making a very successful super light super stiff shoe i've got i've got boxes of hundreds of shoes that have didn't turn out or weren't very good i've kept them all Um, i'd like to do a good youtube video on showing all the designs that i tried that uh, worked like for example i used to make my um cleats and the sole as one piece one piece carbon so i used to make my cleats really made from carbon fiber and it was great it was really good because it was super light um yeah it was wonderful but to think about walking on carbon fiber is not a, a smart decision at all and i and it used to crack um if i stood on some rocks or something like this and yeah it wasn't the smartest thing i've ever done but um it was just you know it it's just, just something that i just wanted to try and yeah i i used it for one season but i had to be really careful how i walked and it, yeah the carbon would crack very easy carbon's not designed to yeah be put on the ground that's for sure
0: it, it sounds to me like we're getting back to uh, to michael jordan again with his famous quote that he said like i failed over and over again in my life and that's why i succeed
1: well yeah um <laughs> it's exactly like that there was a, a famous um kung fu master and uh and his quote his funny quote was a student would say what's the difference between you and me and the master would say, I have failed more times than you have. And that's D- that's exactly go. it. That's exactly it, you know. Um.
0: All right. Well, uh, so that's a bit like a, of a gain in terms of like technique that you mentioned. You mentioned the gain like in uh, maybe like gadget aerodynamics uh, mainly. Um, is there also in, in cycling maybe a world to be one in terms of nutrition? Because I think that's like another passion of yours
1: oh you've just (laughs) you've just made we're gonna uh, go
0: now into a two-hour podcast if we we open that you
1: you just made it oh i'd love to talk about nutrition (laughs) is the biggest problem in cycling i think i think people really overlook this um nutrition is everything nutrition is a fuel to your energy and um energy is the most important thing and just you know if you just want to touch on simple things um uh, races we do. So obviously in cycling, um, because it's a long sport, um, we spend more calories we can consume per hour. This is just, this is just, uh, a thing we can never avoid. Um, and you've probably heard of, um, uh, ketones, which is a, a supplement that everyone raves about. And, yep. and, uh, I, I like to, I, I don't take ketones, but I like the theory on it. So the theory on ketones is, that you take ketones and you use this as energy and you spare your, your glycogen in your storage. So at the end of the race, you have more glycogen than what you would have before. And this is the key thing to winning races. But what a lot of people forget is if you improve your fat metabolism, it's the exact same thing and it's free. So what I'm trying to say is if you start a race and your fat metabolism is really good. So by, by saying fat metabolism, what I mean is if you're able to utilize your fat as energy um, better than other athletes, that means you're able to spare your glycogen for the end of the race. And the, the most important thing about this is if, if I'm 80% of a rider that's um, better than me, but I have more glycogen in my, in my stores than he has, and he's depleted i'll be able to beat him in a sprint or beat him up a climb because i have more glycogen there for the final of the race so with the nutrition side there's a certain amount of calories we spend per hour and there's a certain amount of calories we can consume per hour which is far less than what we can spend and i see a lot of mistakes with the nutrition side where you see riders they have they eat three meat, uh, three hours before a race and they stop eating and and what actually happens is, as soon as you stop eating you're actually spending calories you're not spending a lot but you're spending calories and some riders won't even eat in the first hour of the race because they don't need to and it's true you you don't feel like it and you don't really need to but you're spending energy at the start of the race you could be spending 600 to 800 calories at the start of the race but because it's because the, the glycogen is in your muscles and your liver. You don't you don't actually feel like you need more. But the problem is, once you deplete these glycogen stores, then that's when you need to. That's when you go into like a minus. And if you're able to just snack before the race to top up your stores and start eating at the start of the race, because you can only consume depending the level of the athlete and how well you train this you can consume between 70 and there's been numbers up to 120 um, grams of carbohydrate per hour which is which is which is quite a lot and if you start this process one hour after the start of the race you've missed a window of of absorbing between you know 360 to 420 calories and at the end of the race if you actually minus Say 400 or 300 calories, and you're, you know, you will never get that back. You will never get that back. So, just from a nutritional point of view, I always recommend that at the start line, have a bar, have a gel, and start your intake there. Because while you don't need it then, you will need it at the end of the race. So that's one key thing I think a lot of cyclists really, really do something wrong. And also from a Um, I I see it a lot with the Ironman athletes too. When I was investigating um, the Ironmans, I I found it amazing how no one eats, and I know this sounds crazy, I know this sounds crazy, where people don't eat in the swim. And yes, it's hard to eat in the swim. I I totally understand that. But for me, it's it's the same thing. Where Ironman, it goes to the extreme. Because what you're doing is you're doing a a 9-hour or 10-hour event and nutrition is crucial in this type of event but they starve themselves for the first one hour of the swim and I was lucky in Florida where when I did the Florida Ironman there was a two-lap course and you actually ran 50 meters on the beach so I actually had a gel um, tucked into the sleeve of my wetsuit and halfway through the swim And when I came to the beach, I took the gel out, I took the gel, I put the wrapper back into my um, wetsuit sleeve, and I continued it. And that just gave me a little bit of a head start on my nutrition, half an hour before any other athlete. And this is, um, you know, these little things here really, um, they can really make a big difference. And then on the other side is um, recovery. Uh, I see a lot of riders making mistakes on how they recover throughout the race. So, you know, the the typical standard um, procedure is as soon as you, finish a race you should have a very high um, carbohydrate uh, drink or meal and directly after the race so this will create a huge insulin spike and when you have a huge insulin spike that's when you're the most anabolic so you you turn into a recovery phase um, state and when you have your protein after that so 20 minutes after that when you when you have high insulin and you become anabolic and you have your protein Um, and your standard protein is like 30 to 40 grams of protein. And when you have 30 to 40 grams of protein, you have three to four grams of leucine and leucine creates protein synthesis. So that's when you really get into um, your muscle recovery. If you do not have that glycogen, that sugar drink before, and not have that high insulin spike, you will not be so anabolic and you won't have such a good recovery phase. So that sugar is far more important than the actual protein. Um, so you, you have this and then you go you take your protein and then you actually start repairing your muscles as soon as possible and then what I see riders do especially professional riders we finish the race we do these two good procedures at the bus but then we ride in the bus for one to two hours to the hotel then we have massage and there's two people per room so one person has massage first next person has massage so you got to wait for everyone's finished, and then you have dinner for sometimes five hours later. So that's a five-hour window. People are not eating carbohydrates to refuel their body before the next stage. And um, it's just come to our, well, the team's attention now, um, and something I've always believed in, is you should have your main meal 20 minutes or 30 minutes after your protein shake. Because as soon as you fill up your glycogen stores as fast as possible, that's when you start your, your recovery um, as fast as possible. And if you delay it by four to five hours, and yeah, during grand tours or these stage races, it's, it's, it's a big time that you're wasting.
0: Sounds like there's a world to win in, in nutrition still in cycling.
1: Oh, there's a, yeah, 100%. It's, um, the, you know, I always say the biggest problem in cycling is tradition. And people are really stuck in the olden days, and people don't like change. And guys are really holding themselves back. That's that's definitely guys are really holding themselves back in um, yeah, definitely cycling because of tradition. It's hard that we you know you know the saying is hard to teach old dogs new tricks.
0: If if we have a look at like uh, if we just circle it all back to cycling and and the racing itself, and then we we slowly gonna wrap it up. Um, we actually always have like the, the Tux Turbo fan question of the week. And this week, the Turbo fan question is from uh, from James Lamb. And he wanted to know if racing is going to come back. Is it going to be more aggressive or more subdued after the lockdown? What
1: do you think? Whew. Um, that's a good question because like, you know, the... the there was a few concerns about, yeah, we should be doing you know more small races before the big races because guys are not ready and everyone has to come to a different level. But then I'm sort of thinking, yeah, but if everyone's on the same level when they come back, then you won't notice a difference. Um, so with that in mind, it could go any way. But however, will it be more aggressive? I think it will because there's not just because of the lockdown but more because of the economical impact and teams are really struggling and a riders there's, there's some teams that are really benefit from the coronavirus period so like movie star um, these type of companies jumbo that you know they, they've done well um, And there's some teams that have really struggled so some teams are not signing riders some teams are being aggressive and there's going to be UCI might change the amount of riders per team. So, it might at the moment, I think it's 28 at the minimum. And they might drop this down to 21 or 22, which will change a lot, which will make a, a huge um, supply of riders in the market. So, if this does happen, racing will be very aggressive when it comes back. Riders will be really out there to. Um, you know secure the contracts and also the other thing is we've got so many races in such a short period of time where you can be on good form for the whole season now if that makes sense where before the season was so long you really had to pick your moments so now you can be like i can be in top shape for two months and that's basically what our season's going to be. It's going to be 2 months. I know it's I know it's about 3 months long, but you cannot do every race because they all overlap each other and there's fair few races for you to do. Like when I selected my race program, I couldn't do everything I wanted because the team was like, "Yeah, but we got other guys that want to race too." So, I think there's going to be a short period of time where you can race and guys are just going to give maximum effort into it. So, it's going to be a lot of aggressive racing.
0: Yeah, like you said, like a short period of time of racing. Definitely, no one doing a uh, three Grand Tours uh, th- this year. Um, do you know kind of like what your program is going to be like? You already mentioned yes. the Dauphiné, I think, is your first race, and what's after that?
1: Yeah, so at the moment, um, I'm in Dauphiné. air is sort of the build-up race for the Tour de France, and I'm I'm on the list. At the start of the season, it was 100%. I was in the, the Tour de France. Now the team's really like, um, they don't know what to expect from the riders because they've had such a long break. So everyone's on the long list now for the Tour de France. Um, and if I do well in Dauphiné, then I go to the Tour de France. And if I do the Tour de France, it's basically... Um, yeah, Dauphin Air Tour de France, and then they say um, Gongji in China. Um, I don't know if that's going to go ahead. And then that's basically my race program. If I don't do well in Dauphin Air, then I do Dauphin Air um, Luxembourg, and then Giro, and then that's it. Um, yeah, it's because it, well, what's going to be interesting with the new with the new calendar is that a lot of the races overlap each other, so the quality of riders per race is going to be less if that makes sense because if you're yeah. doing the giro you cannot do any of the classics and normally a lot of guys that do the classics do the giro so it's going to it's going to dilute the the quality of the riders per race because so many races overlap um, you know normally you have guys that do the giro and the velta where well, this year they overlap so you cannot do that um so you're either going to do one or the other. Um, so, yeah, it will definitely be um, less quality riders at every race, um, but you're going to have good riders at every race But you just can't do every race. That's the thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then maybe if we look at you already mentioned as well, like there's uh yeah, it's tough times also in cycling uh, for people uh, who, whose contract uh, were who going to be out of contract next year. Uh, I think your contract ends ends up at the end of the year as well. That's right. But you're going to be racing in 2021, I've read.
1: Well, yeah, I'll definitely be... um, I'll definitely be doing something. Um, I have a a few options, which is good. Um, And uh, I'm also thinking maybe I might go down the Ironman route. So (laughs) I don't know um, exactly what I'm going to be doing, but... um, I'll definitely be doing something. That's for sure.
0: Okay, so so maybe if we then uh, wrap it up and make it full circle, this could be
1: your last dance. (laughs) Very good. It could be my last dance. That's true. That's true.
0: (laughs) So so how are we going to remember remember Adam Hansen then if this would be the last dance? (laughs) I don't know.
1: yeah just uh yeah uh someone that just loves riding his bike that's how, that's all i want to be remembered as okay
0: it sounds uh sounds like a really good way to be remembered though i think and also a bit of a legend for finishing all those grand tours i think we got to give you that as well
1: very good thank you very much
0: all right all right. We've got gonna wrap it up uh, i want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the turbo talks podcast uh, especially especially adam thank you again uh, keep following him in his cycling career and his uh, off the bike adventures and uh, who knows what's going to happen and also make sure obviously you follow and subscribe to the turbo talks podcast to hear more great insights from other uh, cyclists on the regular and as always don't forget to tell a friend about the podcast and in the meantime uh, as basically as adam said just enjoy the cycling and make sure you never stop cycling this was rob with adam Hansen of lotto sodal stay tuned for the next turbo talks